This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. MotoGP in 2022 is well and truly back. This is the Crash MotoGP podcast. The recording date is Monday the 7th of March, the day after the Qatar Grand Prix. My name is Harry Benjamin. Alongside me, Crash MotoGP editor Pete McLaren and former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewin. Uh, coming up, Moto3 provided some high-octane action and Moto2 certainly kept us waiting until the final corner uh, to find out who would make it onto the podium. And of course, the main event once again showed us how you can never predict MotoGP with a first-time winner whilst expected championship contenders found themselves in trouble. Everyone had their eyes set on Ducati, especially with Jorge Martin on pole, but a poor start saw, uh, saw the two Repsol Hondas of Paul Espargo and Marc Marquez lead the way, and the KTM of Brad Binder right up there as well, along with the Suzuki of Joan Mir. Things start to look fairly settled, Keith, and then it all came undone, and in the end, it was Anaya Bastianini who took a fantastic first MotoGP win and an emotional win for Grassini too, Keith, dedicated uh, to the late Fausto Grassini. I think what you've got to do is look back, first of all, to the to FP1, We're working our way through Friday and Saturday, because, I mean, the Suzukis were somewhere where we didn't expect them to be. They're right on the pace. Eight Ducatis on the grid. What, what was it one journalist um, or one particular publication put out there that the five sisters were complaining about the one that had got all the advantages, that being Ducati this year. Um, and what happened to Ducati? Only four of them finished, and the one last year's bike ended up winning the race, holding up their honours, obviously. But the fact is, is that, that there were surprises all over the place. Zarco didn't even get through to qualifying two. Uh, the, the, there was some kind of electrical problem with the, the Ducati that Jack Miller was riding. It didn't know where it was on the track. Obviously, some kind of GPS type hookup that it has with the, the electrical system, I would imagine. I'm not that close to it nowadays, so I, I can't be sure. But there was a lot of problems for Ducati, and yet they still came out, you know, smelling of roses. Um, unlike Yamaha, the other not such a big surprise, really, was it, that, that they ended up where they were, Quattararo all at sea. And I was thinking this morning before you guys came on that, do you know what? Keenan Sofoglu has played an absolute blinder here, hasn't he, with Yamaha? Because everyone was shouting and screaming to get top rack Razgadioglu involved this year in MotoGP as world superbike champion. It would have been a disaster for a talent like top rack to come into a, a factory that isn't performing at the moment and isn't responding to what their riders want. That's the key for me, is that Quattararo said last year, this is no improvement. We ain't getting where we need to be. Now they're locked in to the, the, the performance of that bike for the rest of this year. That's it. They're done. They've got no concessions, so they can't ch change anything as far as the motor is concerned. They keep on giving us this stuff about, you know, there are lots of other things that we can, uh, uh, you know, give us a bit more performance, a bit more traction at the back or push us down the straight, you know, rah, 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 rah. But you can't beat a bit of horsepower. Um, the overall race, you know, speed was remarkable. I mean, it was miles faster than last year. I mean, everybody has made a step change except Yamaha, it would seem. I mean, the Hondas look real good. Polish Bargro threw away a win again with a stupid mistake. Um, Bangnaya took out the pole man, Jorge Martin, you know, with a, an over-ambitious move up the inside. I think frustration probably getting involved there, and that's something that, that does happen, obviously. You think that was over-ambitious? so many stories. I mean, pick one, Harry. We could be an hour just doing, <laughs> doing MotoGP and talking about 
why people were where they were and where they weren't. I mean, it was just nuts for me. Just to pick, oh, I'm sorry. Rider, rider of the day, manufacturer of the day, KTM, uh, Brad Binder, brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I know Bastianini won the race, you know, Radi Ra, but for me, KTM made the biggest, you know, performance out of what we thought was going to be nowhere. I, I want to talk about KTM, but I just want to pick up on what you said about Bagnaia as well. You think that was an overambitious move there to not just, because he was side by side with him. And then it was quite, Martin said it was, you know, quite a scary crash for him in the end. It was a scary crash. I mean, when you've got someone that dives underneath you, you, you the problem is, is that when you're watching it on TV and it's sanitized, you can sit back in your big old sofa and watch it and make critical comments and all the rest of it. When you're in 200 mile an hour, you know, into a braking area, under lights, with everything moving around you, with the air, the, the turbulence that you've got, everything going on, you've got no idea. I've got no idea, despite the fact I've raced a motorcycle at a pretty high level. I've got no idea just how difficult that is. Getting to the end of the straight, hitting your marks, full tank of fuel, all the other bits and pieces that are going on around you. I know they're paid for it. I know they're, they're, you know, they're in tune with their bike, da, 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 da. But when you're trying to pinch half a yard nowadays, that is like 10 yards back in the day. You know, these guys are right on the limit all of the time. And Bagnaia stretched himself just a little bit too much for me. I mean, whatever the reason was in the end, he just, you know, he lost the front end. Really simple. You've got to squeeze, you know, when you're underneath somebody, they're coming down on top of you. You've got a trail break, squeezing it, just you're squeezing it a little bit hard as you're coming into the corner. You've only got a contact area sort of like that that's touching the ground. And uh, unfortunately, he took Jorge Martin out, and it could have been terrible. We know how Jorge Martin has had injuries left, right, and centre in the past. He could have picked up another one. It could have ruined his entire year. This is going to be the toughest year ever in MotoGP. It's the longest season, the most races. We've started earlier. We're going to finish late. Uh, there are a lot of back-to-backs, a lot of different tracks this year as well that, that kind of are going to evolve during the course of the year. And to, to wreck your year at round one would have been a disaster it wasn't as it turned out so it's good thankfully it wasn't but of course that was two Ducati's out Pete wasn't it yeah I just want to add to that that Bagnaia was pretty clear after the race that, that this all stemmed from this this problem should we say in the race the front end accident that they'd still been developed they'd had these issues with the engines hadn't they? they they changed to this sort of hybrid engine that basically they were still developing parts on the bike right up until free practice four they were trying different things and he was pretty clear afterwards you could see I mean Bagnaia is a calm guy but he he wasn't happy. He said, look, we need to stop changing the bike. We need to just fix the bike. He said, Enea's bike, they've got that bike. It's sorted. You put fuel in it and you ride it. And he said, that's what we need to do. And he said that, that, that I mean, okay, he's being prodded by journalists, but he eventually said at one point, look, I'm not a test rider. You know, we need to be racing here. And it's interesting, Keith brought up KTM. KTM have tried to solve exactly that problem, haven't they? That they thought they had last year where they're testing new, new things on a Friday practice. And it's setting them back for the whole race weekend. And it almost seems like that's the situation the Ducati guys found themselves in. Certainly, Banyaya 100, was 100% clear on this. He said, look, we've got to stop changing the bike. You know, changing meaning different parts and things. You know, we just need to get the setup, understand the bike, and, and do a normal race weekend. So that's where he felt the problem sort of stemmed from. Yeah, but he's speaking as a rider, Pete. And, and riders will always say that. At the end of the day, he's riding for a factory team. It's their job to innovate. It's their job to find all the little extra bits and pieces. And it's his job to get his head down and get on with it. It's a situation where a rider always wants a stable platform, wants to, wants to find that base setting that he can work from. Great, but you know, when you're riding a factory team, and I do know about this, when they chuck stuff at you, you've got to get over it. You've got to work it out. Sometimes, if they haven't developed it, if it hasn't already been done in testing elsewhere or... And I've, I've, we've talked about this so many times on this podcast. The fact is, there's not been that much time, track time, really, for riders to sort this stuff out. And when you've got an innovative team like Ducati that are always, always bringing something back to the uh, party, you know, I don't actually feel sorry for Bagnaia at all. I'm, I'm, I feel a little bit that his frustration has leapt out publicly there, and I don't think he'll be thanked much for Ducati for that. You know, the fact is, is that sometimes when you ride for a factory team, sometimes you're riding a bike that's hard to ride, that's not quite the way it should be if you're... If you, if you want it slightly differently. I mean, the example would be maybe Honda. Mark Marquez, I've always said, Honda was developed for Mark Marquez. No one else could ride it anything like Mark Marquez could. Um, and while he was in good nick, it was winning races and championships. Then they've had to change it so that other riders are able to get around it quite as much. And while we're on the subject of, of Mark, he still ain't quite right. I mean, he says he didn't have any pain 
um, from the injuries he's had, you know, previously. But the fact is, is that Mark Marquez, Mark Marquez being beaten by Paul Espargaro on the same bike, not if he was right. Yeah, I mean, you can see, it was interesting in warm-up, wasn't it? Mark got behind Peko Bagnaia and you could see he got into that race mode and he started trying to chase him. And what happened, Danny went, you know, he lost the front and he fell. And it was, and you, it was just a, this new bike, it's got this different, this, this bias towards the rear grip and things like that. And you just worried after seeing that, that when he gets into the race and he starts pushing again, as you say, he's you know, attacking in his usual way, if he could, it, it's a lot of front end, isn't it? And it just doesn't seem to be working that way for him at the moment. There was, what, three moments at turn one in, in three laps that cost him first the lead to pole, and then he dropped behind Bastianini, and I think Binder as well. And, and I think after that, it was a case of, well, look, let's just bring it home. Human psyche, the wonderful thing, and even Mark Marquez has proved now that he is actually human, not quite the alien maybe that we'd all thought he was, because he could he could pick it up off the floor and go just as fast. You know, that one crash that you had early on, you almost had another one pretty soon off the back of it as well, which would have really sapped his confidence at that point. But when it comes to race day, Mark Marquez normally is, is not the kind of guy that slips back to where he was. <laughs> I'm talking about slip back. He didn't slip back that far. But the fact was, was that, you know, uh, I think as well, the, the, we had a, conditions were very difficult over the weekend there. They weren't stable. You had a lot of, you know, sandstorms and the track wasn't quite as good as it's been in the past. You had... Yeah, you know, it was really murky on on Saturday through free practice and qualifying. I mean, it was you know not great weather for, for there, and the weather you know t- the track temperature varied a fair bit over the course of the weekend as well. And that all makes it when you're looking for that you know thousandth of a second here and thousandth of a second there makes a difference. And who knows, maybe that wasn't quite the way that uh... Marquez is also very good at taking the best out of it now in the race. He, he kind of learned that early on, earlier on in his MotoGP career that, you know, sometimes you've got to take the points, you know, and to come away with the points he's come away with puts him in a good position for next time out and so on. You know, I, I don't think Marquez is done and dusted by any means at all. It was a surprising weekend. Qatar, as I've said before, is, is a unique place under the lights. It really, really is. It's a spectacular place. Riders pretty much like the circuit, works for, for most of them, and we've had a surprising result. Well, hey-ho, that's what happens sometimes at the beginning of the year, doesn't it? And then it all settles down. Who was it? I think it was my old mate Julian Ryder who used to say, when we get to the ground war, probably a phrase that I shouldn't use, actually, in, in circumstances as we are at the moment in the world, but I know the, 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 the sentiment that Jules used to come up with with this. It, it, when we get to the main part where it all really digs in and we all get to, to the European tracks and the like, we will see the Honda and probably the Yamaha as well making a comeback. Um, I think the big issues, Suzuki... Looked like they've got a motorbike that's well capable of doing the business. It didn't at the weekend. Uh, Ducati, well, <laughs> there's certainly going to be some soul-searching going on there, and they're going to be trying to work out quite what went wrong on all fronts there as well. But when you've got the three most unexpected people that are the, the main runners for Ducati, and everybody else, the main factory boys, you know, falling by the wayside one way or another, I would have said it was a disaster for Ducati this weekend, masked by the fact that the beast did the business. That is it, isn't it? All of these people that had really bad races, especially Banyaya and Miller, they can almost, maybe not glass half full, but a, a bit of something in the glass, shall we say, because if, if Mark Marquez had won that race or some one of the favourites, they, they'd be feeling a lot worse, wouldn't they? I think I think uh, that's pretty good. Very good point. Very good point indeed. But you, you, you talk about how, you know, Honda may well, you know, get better in the European season, but surely this is a, a huge weight off their shoulders after what, you know, their disastrous last year. You know, Marquez is back on the bike. He's riding well. Aspargo was challenging for the win. This is a massive improvement for them. Surely they, they'll be buoyed by this. Well, yeah, I think you probably would be if you got, I mean, Paul, how many times do we see this with Paul Espargaro? A mistake at a certain point in the race that really, Paul Espargaro should have won that race. You know, the Honda looked good enough and he looked good enough. He looked good all through the week and yet he still didn't. And I think that's the point. You're not going to win a championship if this is the way it goes. The only way, you know, Mark Marquez has taken the points. I, I, I would I would still put money on, on Mark Marquez over and above Paul Espargaro for a championship any day of the week. You know, it's a, it's a situation where Paul's getting on with this bike now. The bike has come to him. Honda have developed a motorbike that's working for him. I mean, we've heard the other Honda guys say something similar. But it's still really only Mark Marquez who's going to win him a world title, isn't it? I mean, I was impressed by Paul, I have to say. I, I think that, that after last year, you know, and, and that whole 
what must he have been feeling when he walked out of KTM and then they, they win those races and then they even, you know, last year the factory riders won a race each as well and he had that disastrous year at Honda. I think that, you know, I think it's great. I, I was happy to see him doing well at the front. It was interesting that he he said, look, they went through all the plans before the race and, and none of them involved two Hondas at the front of the grid and then pulling away. So, you know, the, both of the Honda riders changed the soft front tyre, I think, on the grid. I think it was a, a last-minute change. They were borderline. They were in between tyres, and they just went with the safer option. Like Marquez said, look, the front, I could feel it a bit more. Things like that. So I think for such a new bike, I think that's the other thing, isn't it? It's such a new bike to be already almost within sight of victory. I, I think, I think you've hit the, you, you've just you've just hit a nail on the head there, Pete. Because under normal circumstances, the default would be a harder front tyre than the rest of the field. The Honda previously would always pretty much be a, a one step change different from everyone else. It would be you know Mark would always want that extra support on the front end of a harder compound. Um, so it, that is a really interesting uh, observation that that both of them, and that will show that. The way the motorcycle has changed in its um, balance, um, maybe it'll work for Mark later on in the year. Maybe he'll get his head around it, or maybe Honda will end up changing some of it back to how he likes it. Yeah, that, that's we'll the see. interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah, what will, will Mark try and move towards the bike, or will he try and move the bike more towards him? Yeah, I think it's. He did say Mandalika will be. He didn't say a better result, but he said it would be a better weekend because, of course, it'll be in daylight, all the sessions at least, so they can at least work on this bike a bit more. So interesting to see. But as you've been saying about, really, these first four opening races, they're all going to be a bit weird, aren't they? You know, we've had Qatar without any testing, and it's a night race. You've got Mandalika. They're going to resurface it. But what's the rest of the track like? I don't think it was just the 20% that they're resurfacing that was the problem, was it? it that might be the worst bit, but I don't think the rest of it's in perfect shape. Um then you've got Argentina. They haven't been to in two years. Coat has been resurfaced. I think, you know. You hit another nail on the head there, Pete, in, in that um, bit of the conversation as well, when you talk about, you know, Mark Marquez and Paul Espargro and Honda working around the problems that they've got with the new motorbike, whereas Bang Naya was practically complaining about the fact they've got too many bits to try and that, that you know, there's the difference between some riders and some psyches if you like marquez is getting his head down to try and sort it all out whereas bang has, has complained a bit about getting the uh, motorcycle that he doesn't quite want at the minute they're just gonna have to knuckle down and work it out and you're right the the unfortunate thing about mandalika and the like is that no real data and that track wasn't in good condition during the time they tested there so it's going to be completely different when they get back next time so fp1 thing is about racing nowadays Free practice is no longer free practice. It's qualifying for qualifying. Mm -hmm. Free practice one is a qualifying session effectively because it compounds through the session. If you don't get back to free practice three with the top 10 position, um, you're out of qualifying two naturally. You're going through qualifying one. If you don't get out of qualifying one and only two riders can, you're screwed. If you start that far back, it's quite interesting. Uh, Dr. Martin Rains, if you follow Dr. Martin Rains on Twitter, folks, he's a brilliant guy to follow really good guy as well proper northern dry sense of humor and uh, and a very reasonable man but does brilliant stats and if you look through his timeline today after you've listened to us perhaps rambling on um, you'll find one stat in there where he looked at where the top three qualifiers naturally finish in a race and so on and so forth and it kind of underlines the fact that if you don't qualify any good you're pretty well finished you're not going to be a podium man um, and his stats back that up. I know stats and statistics are fairly easy to adjust generally, but not when it comes to racing. And uh, he's got one interesting um, thread of stats on his timeline. Dr. Martin Rains, folks. All right, well, let's uh, focus on a couple of the standouts as well, because uh, I want to talk about KTM and Aprilia. Of course, Brad Binder, we've touched on him already, up there in second in the end. KTM's best ever result in Qatar. Uh, and, and Pete, you know, this is great news, great way to start for KTM. But when you look at the other riders in KTM, not so great. Yeah, exactly, exactly, Harry. I mean, I don't think anyone, as Keith said, KTM were really the, the surprise of a lot of surprises. I mean, you know, the whole podium was a surprise, but, but Brad Binder, I mean, let's be honest, another lap, he could well have won that race. 
I mean, he was on it. What was he? Point, yeah, he was point three at the line. He does come good late, though, doesn't he, in a yeah. race, Brad? And he was on, one of his specialities. Yes, and he was on the medium tyre scheme. You know, we've just been speaking about the Honda. He did go with that. Instead of going for the soft, he went for the mediums. And so, which, which we know, again, the KTM likes, and they've been able to use it. Uh, you know, as you say, the, the most impressive thing with Binder is that it's not been a KTM track. This has been one of their worst tracks traditionally since they've come back to MotoGP. So it'd be so strong here. Uh, you know, we know last year they were struggling with traction out of the corners. Binder was saying that the bike was really great going into the corners this time. He said, you know, you can just take your, you know, take your hands off the brakes if you like and just roll it in. Whereas before you had to really sort of hold the brake and drag it in and that kind of thing. And he used the word solid. You know, he said the bike's solid. So, you know, Brad Binder and a solid bike is quite a combination. I can't believe it. The sun's Keith, coming out. I was going to say, it's like go. you're in heaven. You're shining. Yeah, you're yeah. glowing. <laughs> I'm glad I wore a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. It's absolutely beautiful here in Northamptonshire. Very sunny. For those who aren't watching on the YouTube, you can see Keith in all his glory on the Crash Moto GP YouTube channel. Um, With my free bike shed yeah, t-shirt. <laughs> give that a plug. There we go. <laughs> um, but as Pete says, absolutely, uh, it was a stonking uh, race from uh, from Brad Binder. But um, and then I'll, let's talk about um, Aprilia Keith as well. Alicia Spargro up there, he'll be very happy with four. Surely not just you know ended up just behind his brother in the end. I think um, Aprilia, do you know, I, I, I mean, I, I, I sort of remember this in my head, how critical I, I am and I've been about Aprilia over the years. I mean, like, I think that they're a small factory. They've had that little bit of turmoil. You know, funding is hard. They've had team changes. I think sometimes they're a bit hard on their number two riders. They've been quite difficult with their number two riders and a couple of Brits have had a hard time in that team as well. So forgive me for being probably fractionally biased when it comes to the management of, of Aprilia. But this year, they seem to have just made that that change, that step. And when I said earlier in the conversation that, that that race was a fast race, it was a very fast race compared with last year, in conditions that were changeable, that were quite difficult. We've touched on that as well. So maybe the track wasn't as good as previous years, and yet we've still gone a lot faster this year overall. Um, so Aprilia are there or thereabouts. I hope they can carry that momentum forward. They Remember, they still have concessions, which means that they should still be able to make upgrades if they have them in the pipeline to make the bike and the riders even happier. Uh, it's going to be very, very interesting. I mean, they're, they're, they're really close to, to, to getting some kind of performance out of this. I mean, Maverick Vinales, you know, he wins around Qatar. It's one of, one of the tracks that, and it's the beginning of the year when we expect Maverick to be absolutely on top form. But once again, Aleish has shown his quality. Yeah, I love Aleish because he wears everything on his sleeve. You, there's there's nothing you won't hear from Aleish. If he's unhappy, you're going to know about it. And I would think that he must have been pretty happy with the weekend. Um, I didn't hear him speak afterwards. Pete, you might have done. Um, so you can fill us in on that. But, I mean, I would think he was pretty happy with the performance of the bike and certainly with his performance. Yeah, exactly, Keith. There's, he said, you know, Aprilia's in the mix. And, and that's what, you know, he always had a chance of a podium. He maybe he was closing in on pole, wasn't he? He said he made a small mistake, but he said, look, compared to where the bike was, I mean, if we go back one year, this would have been the bike's best result, you know, fourth place. They did hit that sort of ceiling of sixth place so many times, and they had not been able to go through. So, again, four manufacturers in the top four covered by two seconds. And, and, and again, you then look at the other manufacturers. What do you go back five seconds to Suzuki? 10 seconds to Yamaha. Yamaha was the sixth manufacturer. I mean, who would have thought that? The manufacturer that won both races last year. It's, uh, you know, it, it all changed, as they say. Think about um, Qatar, it's fast. It's got a fast straight line. There's no way on a slow bike that you can keep an advantage because down in the turn one every time, someone's going to be underneath you. And you're not going to be able to put your fast lapping because you're not going to be able to run the, 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 the lines that you want to run because there's people all over you. Every time you've got a small advantage, they'll be across you when you get to the end of the straight. And five or six, seven mile an hour might not sound like much, but who is it who made the the um, example of if you stand still, let someone run past you? That's how fast someone is they're passing you by. You know, a human can run at seven mile an hour. And that's quite fast if someone belts past you. So it gives you a bit of a, a real world example of, of, of how it is out on a racetrack. It makes a massive difference. And moreover, it, it balks, messes up, mires your line into the next corner, into the next braking area, because someone's jammed it underneath you because they've been able to get with you, which is the, which is the key. 
Um, it won't be as critical for some of the tracks for Yamaha, and their balance is still beautiful. So the bike will win races, I have no doubt, this year. But but then you've got the psychological side of it. You know, when you feel like you're on a motorbike and the factory aren't giving you what you've asked for and what you need, it starts to mess with your head as well, and your, your performance is dulled by half a percent. So all these things add up um, to to a bit of a disaster, to be honest. I mean, it, it, you know, Quattararo finishing, where did he finish? Ninth in the end. Best Yamaha, but ninth place. I mean, it, thousands of know, a second behind like Zarco right at the end. Yeah, and Zarco, Zarco couldn't even qualify into qualifying two. Zarco didn't get out of Q1. You know, so he was starting well down the field. It's, it, it, it's a nightmare for Yamaha. Now, they've had them before, and they've come back brilliantly. But you just can't feel that that's going to be a consistent way to win championships, to keep coming back. You've got to sometimes come, you know, do what... I don't know, I don't know what the problems are with, the, you know, cross-the-frame four-cylinder motorbike. You know, it, it's not performing perhaps in the way they wanted to at this racetrack. We'll see what happens at, the, at Mandalika, which is, again, an unknown quantity. But when we get to some of the more, you know, tighter tracks, if you like, it's, it's, it's going to come into its own again then. But have you given away too much by then? That's going to be the problem that Yamaha is going to have all year long. How much have we given away? I think Quattro used the word worried, um, you know, for good reason. He said, well, look at, look at the race we had last year. Look at where we are today. Interesting, probably his race time may have been identical. You know, we've been saying that the bike hasn't changed much. It's probably, it was, what, 10 seconds from the victory and the race was 10 seconds faster. So it, it seems like almost he, he rode the same race as last year in a way. Um, I did try and ask him, maybe a little bit unfair question, but I said, look, you know, have you, have Yamaha explained to you why they weren't able to give you this top speed? And, and he didn't really want to answer that. He said, well, you know, was there a problem? You know, did they work on something and it didn't work out? Was there a problem? Anyway, related to that, I said, and what about the contract for next year? You know, how much are you going to be these issues with the bike? I mean, how much does that play a part? And, you know, he thought pretty carefully, but, and he said, well, the first part I'll keep to myself. The second part, he said, look, the priority is the performance of the bike. And he said, that's it. And I think maybe, you know, there's some reports of huge amounts of money being asked for. And I think he just wanted to make clear here that he wants a bike that performs. He's here to win. And that's it. He's using this phrase now all the time of pushing 100%, whatever the bike does, isn't he? And I think he's he's just trying to underline that that's, that's what, what it's all about for him. But as you say, you know, to be in this situation when you haven't signed for next year, I don't know. It's uh, the, the... which is which is why I said that the, the, uh, right now we got contracts coming up this year, at the end of this year or during this year, and I mean a lot of them are, are probably close to being signed now because we, we seem to get earlier and earlier every time when it comes to contract time. But uh, that's why I said right at the beginning that Keenan Safaoglu, manager, obviously multiple moto, uh, so, sorry, Supersport world champion, manages. Top rack Razgadioglu, who is the superstar in world superbikes, and will settle into this MotoGP paddock like a duck does to water. I've no doubt about that. But a very clever move by not coming early, as we all wanted him to. I did. I wanted him. I wanted to see him in MotoGP. Yamaha. You know, we he could have slotted into a Yamaha place. But thank the heavens, I'm not managing him because they played a blinder. Because Yamaha will be forced this year now. They will be forced to put every piece of resource that they have back at the factory into a motorcycle that has more performance for the following year. They must get ahead of this. Otherwise, Yamaha are just going to fall away. You know, they've, they've won a world championship with a guy that was brilliant on Yamaha, but he's, he's going to struggle to win one again, given the performance that we've seen in a straight line. It's going to matter as this, this year goes on. I mentioned the, uh, the five sisters that were unhappy with the, with the, with the sixth sister, um, they've all had a bit of a falling out over the the shapeshifter, the the and, and everyone's trying to get it banned, of course. But uh, the, you know, Ducati have drawn a, a, an advantage over it, and they've got it for this year. But everyone's trying to get it banned for the following year, and there's been, you know, MSMA rows over over the fact that Ducati have quite rightly, within the rules, developed this motorcycle in a completely different way to everyone else. And if they want to catch up, they've got two choices: vote to ban it for. 2023 or spend a load of money developing something to try and equal Ducati. Um, I think if I was one of the five ugly sisters, I'd have my hand in the air to ban it because <laughs> I wouldn't want to be spending the money. And just on the top speed, you mentioned Suzuki. I mean, that was the surprise really before the race, wasn't it? Where, where did that speed come from? I mean, 
and it just it just exacerbated the situation at Yamaha because it's it's an inline four cylinder engine, isn't it? And you know, I, I don't know enough about the ins and outs, but there's this stereotype that the inline cylinders, you know, they can't produce the same top speed as the V4s, the Ducatis, things like that. But you speak to people, I've spoken to people at, at, at some of the top factories that will say, no, no, look, on, in engineering terms on paper, there's nothing that prevents an inline four cylinder having the same top speed. It's more about the psyche of the company. They said, look, if Ducati or Honda made an inline four in MotoGP, it'd be quick on the straight. And I think Suzuki, they, I, think, I think Suzuki have just sort of shown that by bringing out this engine this year, but, but a surprise. What it's about is characteristics. An inline four and a V4 give different characteristics as to how that bike, engine braking and acceleration, how it performs, where it delivers power, where it is its strongest and the like. And when you've got the likes of Michelin that, that kind of keep moving the goalposts ever so slightly, you know, it's, it's a question of which bike is hooking up. Obviously, if you hook up just that fraction better onto a, a long, fast straight, you are going to be five mile an hour faster by the end of it because you carry that momentum all the way through the straight. And hooking up the rear end is a problem for, a, you know, something that you hear riders complain about all the time. Of course they do because they want to they want to push forward straight away. We'll wait and see. You know, it's it's Yamaha have, whether there's something in the data and the telemetry this weekend, that they can sort out. I mean, they, they were talking about there are other things they can do. Um, and the only thing they can do is either enable you to brake later and so therefore gain an advantage there or to accelerate earlier and gain an advantage there. There ain't a hell of a lot more. It's not rocket science at the end of the day. What did Graham, Cros Graham Crosby, if you remember Graham Crosby, the great Graham Crosby, the Kiwi, um, you've got to either be on the gas or on the brake. The bit in the middle is wasting time. <laughs> <laughs> and I always, that phrase always stuck in my head as a racer because he's absolutely right. You either go yeah, hanging on the wires or, or bloody, or, uh, or, or on the brakes because any rolling in the middle is just, just, you know, using up time with, with no real uh, major benefit. Uh, I like that phrase a lot. On, on the flip side for, for Yamaha, um, Morbidelli looked a lot closer and looked like he has recovered from his injury fairly well. I think he was about six or seven seconds back from Quattararo. P. Morbidelli back on it. Have they got two riders that they could at least push the team forward together? Yeah, so, so should just say all of the Yamahas, all the factory Yamahas, so their big issue in the race was front tyre pressure. So I know we're, we're highlighting top speed, and yes, that was a problem for them, but it, we, you know, we all knew that was going to be an issue. The problem that they hit that they weren't expecting was that the front tyre pressures went too high, which we've, we've, we've seen Quattararo suffer with before, haven't we? But all three riders spoke about it. Dovi on the, obviously, the factory bike at uh, RNF. Morbidelli, as you mentioned, he, he mentioned that was a limit for him. And Quattararo, surprised what? by it as well, Quattararo, because he said, look, I wasn't that close. He was behind Banyaya and Martin when they fell, but he said, look, I was about a second behind. They went way above the pressure numbers that they were expecting. Need to explain that slightly. Pressure is about profile and about how the tire squidges into the track. And if you, you, you always set them, when you roll to the grid, you've got a tire pressure, initial tire pressure that you set. And if you overheat a tire, that's why a lot of riders, when you're in a race, don't want to be right up behind the rider in front because you're getting more tire temperature, which increases the pressure in the tire and you have a balloon effect. You do not get the grip that you need. It's not even about really the compound as much as the, the shape of the tyre and the way the tyre feels going into a corner when you're trail braking in. By trail braking, you've got the brake on as hard as you can get it on while it's stood up in a straight line. And as you start to tip in, you start to release the brake really gently till you get to the apex. If, you, if you're too hard on trail braking, you do what Bang Naya did and front tucks under and away you go. Um, ballooning the front tyre, it's one of the things that... that is crucial to get right it's it's almost medieval really the you know you've, you've got too much pressure in a tire it's like they spend millions and millions of quid on all these performance things and you put half a bar too much in a tire and it's wrecked your entire race by the time the thing reaches the temperature and it brings me back to the track condition that was there on the saturday and the, the phrase that i use all the time data is everything the fact is you know where you need to be with that tyre pressure, given the data that you've already had regarding that, that track and that track temperature. And things only need to change slightly over the course of the weekend, and you only need to be a tiny bit out on tyre pressure. And before you know where you are, you're, you're slightly overinflated and, and, and you've not got the grip that you would, or the performance that you would expect from the front end of the bike. Big difference. Incredible, isn't it? A little bit of, 
little bit of um, air in the in the tire mm. makes so much difference. Or whatever it is they pump it up with nowadays. Certainly uh, work to do either way for Yamaha. And just on a couple more points before we uh, have a look at the Moto2 and Moto3 action. Just on Suzuki. Pete, you know, first race for, for Livio, Livio Supo, I should say, at the uh, at the helm. What, are they are they happy with Mir in sixth and Rins in seventh? Because it looked like they might have been oh. capable of a hell of a lot more. But it seemed like that hype faded away fairly quickly as the race unfolded. I mean, they, all of the riders were singling them out, weren't they, going into the race of saying, look at the Suzukis, because everyone knows how good that bike is in a race situation. Normally, they know how good it was handling for average pace, and now now it has top speed, which, which suddenly came, you know, I mean, Jack Miller said he, he thought it had 30 more horsepower. Now, that would be a, a huge, about 10% if they found that. Now, I think the Suzuki guys kind of made clear that, well, look, it's part of this is the ride height. Bear in mind, a year ago, they didn't even have the rear ride height system. So part of their straight line speed has come from that. Part of it's from the engine and then, you know, aero, things like that. Even so, you know, it's a big game. But as Jack Miller also said, he said intrigued was the word he used because you put that much extra straight line speed through a bike, there's going to be consequences, you know, whether it's just in terms of more fuel being used. Do you have to save fuel more than they would have had to before? Are you using the tire? Keith talked about spinning up the tire and all those issues. When you've got more horsepower, that's, that's, a, that's a real risk. Maybe the character of the engine would have changed slightly, not being as smooth. Now, looking at the result, it's tempting to think that that's what happened, isn't it? That, well, this is what happened here, that they, they hit problems with the tires because they started well. They were right there, weren't they? Quattararo also, they, they made early gains. And then they're actually different problems. Mia did hit rear tire problems, but he was asked, look, is this because of the new engine? And he doesn't think it is. He thinks it just came down to, they didn't get the right setup and that kind of thing, but definitely disappointed. That was the word he used to answer your question directly, Harry. They're disappointed with that result because it looked like it could be so much better, especially when you look at where they were placed in those early laps. Rins, he had the opposite issue. He had issues with the front tire of the bike. So again, yeah, I think as with, you know, Quattararo was disappointed, obviously Mir and Rins expected more. The whole team expected more from Suzuki. So yeah, not what they were expecting after such a strong start. You hit another thing. You keep standing them up for me to knock down, Pete. I'm happy about that. 30-odd horsepower. I mean, again, to give context with that, you need something like 30-odd horsepower to make much of a difference. There's no good 5 horsepower, 10 horsepower here and there. Yeah, it's handy, and you, you'll take it. Thank you very much. But 30-odd horsepower is what you need to make a difference and make a sensible difference because pushing a motorcycle is about as aerodynamic as a brick. It's not like a car. Cars are getting airflow over the top of there, make those adjustments with wings and God knows what. Uh, and sort themselves out from from a, a, a static platform, if you like. A motorbike aerodynamically is a brick, and to actually push something through the air at 200 miles an hour with all those bits and bobs sticking out everywhere takes a, a big jump in horsepower to make much of a difference when it comes to miles an hour in a straight line. Particularly if we're all coming onto the straight at the same speed, it's not hooking up any better or something along those lines. Moving on to Alex Rins, the biggest problem with Alex Rins is his inconsistency. He's massively inconsistent. I mean, he he makes unforced errors. If he was a tennis player, he'd lose, you know, just about every major title just because he makes unforced errors all of the time. And I, I, I feel frustrated about it sometimes when I watch him because he's massively talented. And he really, sometimes he just does things with the bike. And you think, wow, look at Rins. And then it all comes apart just when it's at that crucial point. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I was disappointed with Rins this weekend. I thought, you know, he was going to be in a position. He gained the old psychological high ground. Everyone was saying what a wonderful bike the Suzuki is. And as soon as, a, as soon as people are bleating on about the other bikes being more competitive than theirs, you, you're, you're 1% towards beating them already. Um, and the Suzuki is a great motorbike. It turns and it steers so wonderfully well. It looks like a motorbike, whereas the others look like spaceships in some, some respects. You know, Suzuki got it all going for a small factory you know bravo suzuki they are you know they're doing everything that yamaha don't seem to be doing at the moment um moving incrementally forward and to put it in perspective the gain that they made you know, one year ago mia comes out of the last corner doesn't he at the end of the race and is blasted by two ducatis before yep. the finish line this time around you've got suzuki's going around ducatis on the straight complete change so fantastic whoever their their engine guys yeah i think you know they definitely deserve a bit of a bonus back in the <laughs> hamamatsu <laughs> And picking up on what you said, Ari, about Livio Supo coming on, of course, for anybody that's not um, watched what's going on, Livio Supo then, massively experienced, tough guy, different managerial strategy and demeanour to Davide Brivio, who went to Formula One to help 
Alpine. Um, I think Livio Supo is a, is a bit of a. I think he's going to be a key man as the, as the year moves on because the inconsistency that I mentioned about the likes of Alex Rins, I think the Supo effect will will start to dial some of that out. I I, I just feel that he's a he's a strong character, he's a forthright character, he's a good manager, and I think Suzuki had done a you know pulled off a bit of a blinder by getting him back on board. He must have been bored wherever else he was. I can't imagine living outside of the paddock if your name's Livio Supo. That would be just awful. <laughs> it's bad enough being Keith you. He said he was waiting for that phone call, wasn't he? Um, well, certainly, uh, I think these first few rounds are certainly going to be a bit of a roller coaster. Before we move on to Moto2, just a quick one. We've already spoken about it. Jack Miller was one of the retirements, but there was a question that came in uh, on him from Chris Whiteside on uh, Twitter saying, Jack Miller looked unhappy before and after the race. Is he losing his seat? Would he take a demotion to Pramac or would he look elsewhere? Now, first of all, Pete, I think we should probably clarify it was an electric, electrical issue that forced him out. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the bike basically got lost. He didn't know where it was on the track. That They set up the engines for each corner because they've got so much horsepower that you don't want you know, the small movement of a, of a throttle. You don't want all of that. Thank you for the explain. But you don't want all of that horsepower being unleashed on a, on a technical section of the track. But you do want it on the main straight when you get into sort of the higher gears. And so his bike, let's say, thought he was on the main straight when he wasn't and vice versa. So he was coming out the final corner and wasn't getting all the power he wanted. And then in some of the places where he wanted some bit more finesse and everything else, he would have been hit by the full Ducati uh, armada of horses. <laughs> when you talked about losing his seat, I thought you were talking about last year. Because <laughs> he did lose his seat. <laughs> Literally, it came off and flew into the uh, into the barrier. Um, I mean, this has been something that we've seen before when they had the GPS system that used to, the GPS used to tell the ICU, the, the ECU rather, the electronic ICU, you don't want to be there, <laughs> the ECU, uh, when it used to tell you where you were on the track um, so that you could deliver the power from from a, a satellite situation. Um, it's it's something that we've heard of many, many times before with, with electronics when it, it mucks up. If the, if the bike doesn't really know where it is on a racetrack, you've got a big problem, as Peter said. But, yeah, he didn't look comfortable much all weekend. I think the Ducati just, just didn't do anything that we expected it to do this weekend. I, I just, there, I mean, there's going to be a big old debrief going on over there. That is for sure to try and sort out whatever it was. But it was, you know, way off what we would have expected it to be. Straight line speed and everything else. It just did not seem to do, have the performance that we would expect it to have. And they're locked in now to, to whatever they've chosen. That is that that is their motor for the year. You know, there's no concession situation there. Qatar is the place where, you know, it gets the cutoff. Big decision, isn't it, for exactly that reason, Keith? I mean, and I think this is why Ducati, they were a little bit touchy that, that all the media was sort of asking about this engine situation and this this third spec, if you like. Obviously, there was the GP21 spec, Bastianini, and those guys that we knew about, the 22 spec. And then suddenly, it, this this third in, the, in between, this mix, if you like, spec has emerged with the factory team. And, and, you know, they were a bit touchy about it, but I think it just underlined the tension of the how important that decision is for exactly the reason Keith has mentioned. It could prove a masterstroke or at the moment, let's face it, the race was won by a GP21 engine and Jorge Martin on the normal GP22 was on pole. So as you say, at the moment, the factory team are thinking, well, you know, there must be a bit of doubt there as to what's going to happen now. You've also got Jorge Martin and people using the sort of time frame of two or three races to maybe sort out this, this 22 engine, the full 22 engine, if you like. Well, my suspect is that they will 100% get it sorted. I think Qatar was just one of them ones that they just couldn't quite get right for whatever reason. A um, bit more mileage under the under the wheels, and I think that you'll see Ducati straight back at it. I, I, I don't believe that it was anything other than teething uh, problems that they were having, both electronically. And the trouble is as well, once you, I mentioned it earlier, <laughs> once you're on the back foot, you know, FP1 is qualifying for, for moving through. FP2, FP3, you've got FP4 that there's a... You know, an installation, full fuel and tyre test type situation. Warm-up, you know, is in broad daylight. It's There are so many moving goal, you know, moving factors when you are at Qatar that, that if you're on the wrong foot, even if you've got eight motorbikes out there, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a situation where only the two factory boys will have had the full complement of personnel to sort out problems. Everyone else will be, you know, scratting around trying to find the setup that they need in in a diminishing time frame and that's a scary situation you think you've got a lot of time you've not got a lot of track time when you when you 
as soon as you start your work on Friday, it's like kick bollock scramble to, to get the setup that you need. Uh, and bear in mind now that there's, there's different specs of GP22. They couldn't, how much of the data can the factory team use from Jorge Martin? from the yeah. Marini, from Zarco, you know, we've been speaking about how important this is. Last year, they had four bikes, the same factory bikes. This year, it looked like they'd have five. And we were thinking, wow, you know, that's great. Well, now they've got two, three and three, haven't they? I mean, obviously, there'll be similarities. There'll be some things. But when you've got, as, as they seem to have with the latest engine, this wheel spinning problem, you can imagine that's also affects tire choice. So has this just sort of taken away, blunted a little bit their, their data advantage by having to go with this this splitting the choice of engine for the gp22 riders they'll be back they'll be back he said it now it's been recorded so uh, they will be back we'll, we'll leave moto gp there for now uh, gents and go to moto 2 if i may be so bold it was vietti's first time on pole in moto 2 fairly settled race actually out of the three classes uh, with vietti coming home uh, to take First ever win in the class and another win, it turned out, for uh, Valentino Rossi Towers. They were celebrating, I'm sure. But it was a bit of a mad end when uh, Ayagura, trying his might to get in front of Fernandez, lost the front end, slipped, smashed into him. That knocked them both out wide, but it kept them both in at the same time. Um, but what it did allow was uh, Sam Lowe's to sneak through for the final podium spot behind Kanet Keitha. Uh, what did you make of the Moto2 action? Celestino Vietti and the Mio, the Mooney VR46 team. I mean, it's um, I mean, what a performance from him—a six-second win um, at the first round. I mean, it's it's a dominant performance. But we've seen Celestino Vietti do something like this when he first hit the hit the road at, at I think Phillip Island, wasn't it, with um, in Moto3 when he, he, he podium there, and everyone went, "Whoa, who is this kid? He's still only I think he's still only 20 now, isn't he? I mean, he's he's a real youngster." So we've got a, a guy that comes out and dominates in that way, in that fashion, pole position to win by six seconds. Unreal. Regarding the, the unlucky Agura, I mean, he just washed out the front. Again, it's one of them situations that you can just, you only have to be a little bit offline when you've got a dusty racetrack and, uh, and down you go. Uh, he gave Sam Lowe's a little bit of luck, which is good to see Sam Lowe's. I know not the kind of luck that he would wish for, that's for sure, because Sam's not that kind of guy. But third place podium, at the beginning of the year when he's had a wrist injury that he's been niggling and niggling and niggling. He had good qualifying, um, didn't quite get the lap that, that he wanted to have, but I mean, it, it's still a reasonable qualifying. And then we were all going, is he going to be able to ride a whole race? You know, it's going to be a tough race. There's a lot of effort goes through a Moto2 bike nowadays. These bikes are not easy bikes to ride, particularly. Um, he rode a great race to, to put himself in a position to pick up the pieces should anything happen. And, Lo and behold, last bend, last lap. Um, he rolls around into third place. Brilliant. Good luck, Sam, for the rest of the year. Yeah, that was great to see, Sam. Was it? You could see what it meant to him. He, he didn't know if he could ride, as you say, Keith. I mean, to go from that situation. And it must have been really frustrating because a tendonitis, it wasn't that he, he made a mistake and, and you know hit the ground and hurt himself. It was just one of these things that flared up at just the wrong time. Cost him a day of pre-season testing, things like that. But... Yeah, you know, he did exactly what he needed to do under those circumstances, not being fully, fully fit. He was there in the right place at the right time. And, and yeah, you know, as, as we say, he, he's the experienced guy this year, isn't he? More than ever with these guys like Vietti and Connect and Acosta and all these other people that I'm sure we'll come on to. But Sam's advantage is he's got that experience. And if he can keep doing these kind of rides, we, we see it quite a lot when he's injured. That's the strange thing, isn't it? It's almost like when he's injured, he dials it back that little bit and, and then it just comes to him. You know, he doesn't force it quite as much. And uh, so, yeah, fantastic start for Sam. And let's hope he can uh, can build on it and, and carry it through. Absolutely. And uh, another person we've always got our eye on, of course, is Pedro Acosta. Managed to come through for 12th in the end, but he ran wide and got pushed out in turn one, which sort of dropped him to the back, didn't it, Keith? Um, but... He only managed to sort of carve through to 12th. I wouldn't say he was setting the world alike. Do you think that perhaps he's been taken a little bit by surprise at how competitive and, and difficult Moto2 is? No, not after the testing. He knows that he knows the bike. You know, at the end of the day, it didn't quite come together for him at the first round in, in Moto2. But I think to, to even finish where he did, when you look at the people that are around him, I mean, he beat Albert Arenas. Alcoba, Fanati, you know, there, there are a lot of quite big names that were behind him. Gabby Rodrigo's behind him. There's a, the thing is, with Moto2, it's mega, mega competitive. And 
I think that he had he had an it was a roller coaster ride for Acosta at this round in, in Moto Two. I think that um, we will see this kid right at the very very front. I'm I'm amazed at how well he got on in testing on that bike straight away. There's a big jump from Moto Three to Moto Two, a lesser jump perhaps from Moto Two to Moto GP. It used to be the other way around. There was a smaller jump between Moto Three and Moto Two, and then a big jump up. You know, those riders like Darren Binder who've gone straight through to Moto Three to to the Moto GP. Jack Miller went from Moto Three straight through to Moto GP. That's a massive jump in all terms. Um, psychology, physique, you know, technique, everything else. Um, and, and Alcoba has looked brilliant this year so far. He was below the radar a little bit, I suppose, in Qatar, but he'll be he'll be straight back at it. I mean, what can you say? Joe Roberts, only eight, perhaps. Cameron Bobier behind him. I, I expected, don't know why, I just expected more from Bobier uh, at the opening round as well, because he, he, he's kind of my American that I'm... I'm watching. He's my uh, go-to American at the moment, Bobio. Well, it certainly was a, a, a frantic towards the end of the Moto2, but perhaps a little bit sedated uh, throughout the main chunk of the race. That was not so much the case in Moto3. Uh, Ayumu Suzaki on pole with a great launch to keep him in the lead, and he managed to extend it. To, I think it was nearly four seconds or at four seconds. Um, but then what looked to be a first win uh, for the Japanese saw him tragically denied. What happened? Did he make a mistake? The fairing seemed to come well, loose. I mean, it, what, it, what on earth happened? Well, you've got a massive high side at the end of the day. I mean, like you, you could do that 10 times out of 10 and not wreck a fairing or you might bust a screen if you pop through the screen when you, you've got it a bit wrong. But the, the chances of popping a fairing off like he did and therefore wrecking the rest of his, his race Disaster, really, for Sasaki. He looked dead smooth. He didn't look like he was a, a disaster waiting to happen at all. But in the end, thwarted. Um, so no win for him. Um, John McPhee looked like he might be in a position for two-thirds of the race to, to pop that thing onto the podium. Um, but in the end, a good fifth for John McPhee. It was a good ride from him. Um, I, I, I feel disappointed for him because I, I know that he would have been expecting a podium. You, you ask the question all the time when you watch McPhee. Is he just hanging on in there, making sure his tyres and everything are good for, for late on in the race? Because he's a thinker, McPhee. Um, in the end, fifth place, good place to start the season off, I suppose, with. But he'll be looking for better this year. I suppose you should also say that just before the race, race day morning, wasn't it? We had those penalties arrive. And we did sort of hi oh. highlight, didn't we, that, you know, whoever steps out of line first is going to get a bit of a clobbering. And, and they made clear, didn't they? It was back of the grid and at least one long lap penalty, Gravara on pole, Foggia, the reigning title runner-up. So two guys that, that would have played a key role at the front of the, the race. And Suzuki, you know, he'd been fast in testing mm -hmm. as well. And, and so, yeah, there, so there was three guys that really were taken out of contention as well. So that sort of altered things a bit, but maybe sent the right signal. But it, it wasn't a... You just wonder what goes through their heads, though, don't you? I mean, pulling out a pit lane into the, the stream of riders coming down the straight, you know, 150-odd mile an hour, tipping it into the first corner and you're rolling around coming out the end of pit lane and weaving. I mean, I didn't, they didn't get done for the weaving down the front straight that they should have got done for, in my view. Um, you just wonder what goes through their heads. What on earth? They know they're going to get a penalty now. There is no, there, The consistency in penalties will be there this year because you know the powers that be have looked at every single thing that happened in the last two or three years and have decided to be pretty tough. Um, and they wrecked their weekend by a bit of stupidity. <laughs> I don't get it. Garcia had a damn good race, though, didn't he? Garcia came through, finishing up in second place. So, I mean, I think Sergio Garcia, he might be the man this year. I think I put money on Foggia, but uh, Garcia, Foggia, it's going to be one of them years, I feel. Well, it, was, it was a great... You know, giving himself the work to do after the first first it round it might have been heartbreak of course for uh Suzaki, but it left for a great sort of five-way battle didn't it between andrea minu garcia on toba and john mcphee fell back just in the last couple of laps but it was minio uh, who managed to stay in front and take his second win in moto three made it another win for a valentino rossi seal of approval too ends a four-year win drought for him as well um but just actually pete on on the penalties and, and foggia 
especially obviously title runner up last year everyone high hopes for him not the best way to start his season is it and and he didn't cut through the field as perhaps expected either of course he made his way up to seventh in the end but you know also got a track limits warning during the race too it just looked a bit messy after Acosta won from pit lane there was always this feeling wasn't there well hang on a minute they're at the back of the grid and then they've got these added long laps and and Foggia was the only one that got one long lap for the weaving the, the others didn't so he got one long lap for pulling out as he's mentioned in front of people and then they gave him another one for the weaving which was the more dangerous you know it was quite violent wasn't it the way that he was it's something that's almost been solved in in, in well, you'll know Harry more than me and Keith also that they clamped down on that kind of weaving, haven't they, in four-wheel sport a lot more. The rules are a lot clearer. I think is it one move you're allowed and then you can move back to the line. You know, they, they probably have to come closer to something like that where they spell it out. Look, you can maybe move once or something. But anyway, they drew the line there. It, it was dangerous. There was, you know, that, that kind of weaving, especially I think he went three times and the, the last weave was quite a a jerk to the side. And we saw at Cota last year what can happen when you do that. So, yeah, you don't need it. Um, it was unnecessary, as you say. He came in with as the rain, as the reigning title runner-up. Great pre-season, had everything in place. And, yeah, if he'd have been able to potentially replicate what Acosta did, overcoming these penalties, it wasn't it wasn't out of the question. He could have been at the front. But, yeah, it just didn't, it didn't work out for him. I, I guess I think last year there was a few riders that sort of said, look, what Acosta did was amazing. But the guys at the front held themselves up a bit and sort of you know you know he sort of caught them off guard because they were they were messing around a bit and maybe not showing their full pace mm-hmm. not realizing that there's this guy closing in from behind so maybe it's a faster race this year and maybe that made it tougher for him but yeah definitely not the start i mean and of course his teammate as well so for both leopard riders it wasn't the start they were looking for no, but it was certainly uh, an entertaining Moto3 race nonetheless. Now, last few minutes, let's come back up to uh, MotoGP because I just wanted to touch on the rookies. I feel like it's probably worth a mention for them as well. Remy Gardner led the rookie way, uh, but 15th was the best uh, he could manage ahead of Darren Binder, uh, Fabio Di Antonio in 17th and Ralph Fernandez 18th. So the rookie certainly very much uh, bringing up the rear of the field. Keith, how do you uh, make of our rookies in their first race this season? Remy scoring a point, World Motor 2 champion, scoring a point with a busted wrist. I'm all right with that. Mm-hmm. I think he's 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 managed something that, um, you know, he's a tough kid. You know, he, he got his head down and he got on with the business. Uh, it's, it's a situation where, you know, that wrist could be niggling throughout the year. So to, to, to score just one point and to be ahead of the rookies, you know, I would say that he'd be pretty happy with that. And I am, I think, that, that for what it's worth. I, I think he did a good job. One person he wasn't happy with was Aaron Binder. <laughs> um, he felt that, yeah, they, they, they were battling, obviously, for most of the race, and he felt some of the moves were a little bit over the line. But uh, Darren... Darren, and, it, and he'd have been surprised by that? Exactly. Yeah, Darren said he had no idea. What, he thought it was all fine. So anyway, they had a great battle, didn't they? As you say, there was four rookies there. And, and let's be honest, I mean, Darren, Darren Binder, that was a, a great ride from him. I think his best race lap, 1.2 seconds off the top, only a fraction behind Dovi. I mean, he, he really, you know, he showed good pace in that race. And, uh, and, and yeah, you know, fighting for the, for the final point. Bezeki, obviously, the, of the rookies didn't make the finish. But the other guys, Fernandez, I, I guess maybe, I think I expected a little bit more from him in qualifying. We'd heard even the, the factory KTM guys sort of highlight that, that Fernandez might in terms of a one lap pace, he already looked in testing, like he could pull out a, a quick lap time. You know, we'd seen that, but it just didn't, we didn't really see that this weekend. It was quite a quiet weekend for him. And uh, so I think, as he says, for Remy to come out as top rookie, given his risk condition, um, it, 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 it hurt, it, it, uh, it hinders him more, let's say in qualifying, it seems, when you've got to really push to the limit, it, that, that's when it really hinders him. But clearly he's not 100% yet. Let's hope that the wrist is in better condition for two weeks time. Mm. Well, look, that just about brings us uh, up to speed, I think. Um, And we'll be back uh, next week to preview the new track in Indonesia. Mandalika next week. Will that surface be ready in time? Will Yamaha Ducati get their acts together? What about Suzuki? Can they show their real true pace? Um, So many questions still unanswered. And we're one race into this 2022 MotoGP season. uh, And it's uh, going to be a cracker, I think. And we will find out in due course keith you and pete mclaren thank you as always any questions from you lot our lovely listeners send them in all the 
the usual ways. Leave them in the comments section or tweet us, Instagram or Facebook. Just search Crash Moto GP. Do make sure you subscribe to the Crash Moto GP channel as well and check out our podcast in vision form as well as Jordan, who does all the other videos too. Make sure you subscribe and review if you listen to us in audio format as well, wherever you get your uh, podcasts, Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review there. It really helps with all the various algorithms and things like that. But uh, from all of us, we shall see you back here next time before Indonesia. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.